0: Greetings to you wherever you are and whatever day or time you're listening to From the Bridge. It's the Captain Rick Jones of Fishbait Marketing. We have an interesting and different show today. It's called Everything I Know About Sponsorship I Learned at IEG," And my guest is the founder of IEG, the lovely, talented, and simply brilliant Lisa Uchman. Yes, we'll have another Tuesday tip and another On the Road with Rick, so let's get started. In 1987, I moved to San Antonio, Texas from Atlanta, Georgia, to be the marketing director of the inaugural Nabisco Championships at Oak Hill's Country Club. Uh, That was the predecessor of what is now called the Tour Championship, but it was the first tournament that actually had uh, the top 32 money winners in a Super Bowl of golf at the end of the year, and I was fortunate enough to uh, have a chance to be involved in that event. And while I was living there in San Antonio, someone who I have unfortunately long forgot told me about an amazing sponsorship conference in Chicago, Illinois that he had just returned from. It was called the International Events Group or IEG Sponsorship Conference. I believe he had attended the third year of the conference, and he not only told me about it, but he shared their amazing workbook that each attendee had received. Uh, And I was immediately hooked and made plans to go the next year, and I did. That was 1989, and I went that year and went back year after year after year. And every year, I learned more and more about the industry from some amazing people. Um, the sponsorship industry had been around for a while, but this would be what I call the adolescence period. You know, we had grown from childhood of, of the era of um, sponsorship being largely advertising about brand uh, awareness or about the preference of a CEO, uh, what kind of things he liked or maybe more importantly, uh, his wife liked in that era. And I, In that era, I said he because there weren't many female CEOs at the time. And so we were going through this period of, of growth, where sponsorship became a bonafide marketing discipline, and the IEG conference was on the cutting edge of that. Um, first of all, they had amazing keynote speakers. Um, they had people like Chris Whittle of Whittle Communications uh, or the founder of Patagonia or... Ben from Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, um, just amazing, amazing people um, that, that really motivated you. I've always said a keynote speaker should motivate you above anything else. They also had workshops, and workshops were case studies that in many cases you could apply those learnings or teaching workshops And then they had these things called breakfast roundtables where someone facilitated or moderated a topic. Could have been cause marketing, it could have been uh, event management, it could have been corporate hospitality, it could have been any number of things that each year you had a chance to rotate to three of these 40-minute breakfast roundtables to start your day. Now, for those that know me, I was then and I am today a sponge. <laughs> I stole every idea I heard or saw. And I'd used my time there to pick brains with folks at dinners and lunches and receptions. Uh, Lisa, who was the founder, uh, actually ran it as a family business. Her, her, her brother John uh, was in term, was involved in operations. Her husband, who's an attorney, uh, was engaged there, and her sister Laren was also uh, part of that. And so it was a family business. But the key thing is they treated the rest of us all like members of their family. Uh, and they had a great staff. They had you know people like uh, uh, Jim Andrews and Paula Barrison and Bill Chips and and Penny and so many others that were that were there, uh, and many of them are still there today. Um, and so I, I just made such great friends from the staff at IEG, uh, and it was also my honor to first lead a breakfast roundtable. Uh, Lisa came to me and said, "Rick, would you lead one of our breakfast roundtables?" I think this was maybe my, maybe my second or third year being there, and and then after that, she came to me and said, "Hey, I think you're pretty good. Why don't you do a workshop?" And and from that point on, I think I did twenty something consecutive years of of workshops. Um, Let me tell you how old I am. One of my early workshops was a thing called 45 RPM. And for those that are listening out there that are not of my age or era, we listened to records, singles. You people download singles now on your iPhone. We had a disc, a 45 disc, that played uh, side A and side B. Uh, each one of those 45s contained uh, two songs, one on each side. And so I did a a speech called 45 RPM, which was 45 ideas in 45 minutes tied to 45 record titles. Um, and I dressed up as the event marketing DJ and spun records and gave everybody 45 ideas in 45 minutes because I had a 45-minute workshop. And I went back this week and looked, because I've got things loaded on my computer, and looked back at my records and found that I did 22 workshops uh, over the years, Uh, tried to do a different one every year, Um, and, um, you know, tried to to find something that, that had value to people. And, you know, it was interesting, one of my pet peeves was other people who came and did keynotes or or workshops would often leave, you know, they'd come in, fly in, do their gig and leave. I thought that was stupid. You know, I, w- I was there to try to learn something and you can learn from anybody. And like I said, I, I went to all those breakfast round tables and, and pick people's brains. And I sat with new people at lunches, uh, and I attended as many, uh, workshops as I could that were not against the ones that I was actually doing. Um, Again, to reiterate, when you give a speech, I think you're looking to facilitate one of three outcomes. One, you're you're giving a speech that will motivate somebody. You'll get them engaged. Secondly, you do one that's a case study that someone can steal ideas or a workshop to help you do your current job better. And that was really what my niche was. I did try to motivate people or give them some real-life examples, but mostly I'm a teacher. I tried to teach them something um, and so that was my niche. In 1996, I was actually living in London. IEG every year was in, um, was in, uh, late March or early April. And I don't remember what it was that year, but on, on March, um, six that year, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I actually, uh, uh turned 42 on March 6th, but I, I in february i guess it was of 96 i broke my leg playing basketball in a league in london and i mean a severe uh, leg break i was on crutches for 17 weeks and on a cane for nine months but i'm living in london and it's time for me to go to ihe and i remember going on crutches and traveling because i wasn't going to miss it um there were so many colleagues and friends in the industry that I got to see each year. You know, it was kind of like a reunion. You would only see people that worked in the industry once a year, and you would you would come back and see them and and, and visit with them and, and talk about things that they had done and look for innovations and all this. And so I'm serious about what I what I say. I've had a, an amazing career in the sponsorship industry, and seriously I owe my whole career to what I learned, what I shared, and who I met at IEG. It was a blessing in every way. Now it's time for today's Tuesday Tip. We've been talking about the IEG conference, and it reminded me about those of us that attend conferences. Um, You know, a lot of times you'll go to a conference uh, to make a new contact. And I think that's a very important thing you do. I would go to IEG every year and I would look to to meet new people. But the one thing I didn't do, and the one thing that I can't stand that other people do is when you try to sell somebody something at a conference. You know you corner them in the at a cocktail party and you put the hard sell on. That, that's not only inappropriate, it's pretty stupid, uh, and it makes you look stupid. What I would try to do is I would go up to somebody and say, hey, I'm Rick Jones. Can I get a business card from you? I have an idea that I think might work for you, or there could be a partnership between my organization and your organization, and I'd like to call you later after the conference is over. You know, people appreciated that. People appreciated the fact that, A, um, you might have something of value for them, B, that you aren't going to dominate and waste their time right now, Uh, And see that you were going to let them know that you would follow up with them at a later time. So the Tuesday tip for those that attend conferences, meetings, again, don't try to sell them anything. Just make a contact and circle back with them later. And that's your Tuesday tip. My very, very, very special guest today is Lisa Uckman, the founder of IEG, the International Events Group, and the Sponsorship Report, among a whole lot of other products. We've talked a little bit about IEG today and the background on that, but in 2016, Lisa recognized that philanthropy was where marketing in the media worlds were 35 years ago, ripe for radical disruption and improvement. And so Lisa... Uh, sold the business to WPP, and then once her non compete was up or her contract was up, she left IEG to launch the Pro Social Valuation service. And so, for the second time in her career, she is not only just changing an industry, but changing the world by changing how we measure it. Pro Social Valuation unlocks the promise of technology and big data to value what has widely been considered unmeasurable, namely social capital. Backed by evidence-based research in which there is a proven correlation between a given intervention and a specific impact, PSV converts each unit of social capital into the universally understood currency of money. (laughs) And folks, that matters. The size and complexity of our social and environmental challenges mandates the most effective deployment of resources today. So let's, without further ado, welcome my brilliant, brilliant friend, Lisa Ugman to From the Bridge. Lisa, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have you with us today from the bridge.
1: Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Was thrilled to get your invitation, Rick.
0: Well, you, you're—I I guess the feminine version of the Godfather would be the Godmother. Uh, I mean, and uh, I, I see you as 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 the guru. I see you as the person that, more than anybody else, uh, grew the sponsorship industry to what it is today, and. Uh today's show has been all about everything I learned at IEG. Um I look back, uh I was a puppy. Uh I'm not a puppy anymore. Uh and uh it it has been such a great journey for me uh to be engaged with you and your people over those years. But let's start with the beginning. Let's let's tell our listeners today, you know, what was your background and and how did did you get to where you are today?
1: Well, it was an interesting journey, and it was a wide-open time um, because sports marketing was considered an ad buy on Monday Night Football, and there was no such thing as, you know, cause marketing, arts marketing was philanthropy. So all these areas that are now well-established categories of sponsorship, let's say, um, hadn't yet been invented. So it was just white space that was there for the defining And it really started from me with um, a belief that there was a role to make life better, for civil society to come forward in partnership with brands. And that came from, in college, I majored in philosophy and political science, double major, kind of useless. But the whole idea, going back to like bread and circuses, which could be a negative, but the idea that there were these ways for government to make people's lives better, um, and then bringing in the corporate sector. My first job out of school was working for Chicago's female first female mayor, Mayor Jane Byrne. Um, I was hired to write her speeches, and the day she got elected, um, I was working in the campaign, and the day she got elected, her politics changed radically, and my speeches didn't. So I went to resign, you know, very upset, you know, idealistic young person. And um, her chief of staff said, well, why don't you go look at this office of special events? And this was hotel, motel tax funded. Um, And it had been used really, you know, we're talking Chicago, for mayors to a slush fund, okay, to put it nicely. It had been used as a slush fund, and I decided we're going to use it to fulfill some of the the promises made during the campaign. So we started neighborhood festivals and um, we had the first Vietnam Veterans Welcome Home Parade in the country. Who I partnered with was the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which was kind of um, different. We had Ron Kovic be a featured speaker. So we did all kinds of sort of social activism things and trying to get her out into the neighborhoods. Um, So my whole starting point always was using events and sponsorships and festivals to improve civil society in, in ways that um, were being done in pockets. But what was different was I quickly went through our hotel-motel tax budget, so I started calling up corporations and saying, do you want to sponsor this? I'm from the mayor's office. And everyone said yes. And I thought, oh, my God, I created a new type of marketing, and it really was because in Chicago the mayor's office was so powerful. Who was going to say no? But again, not knowing any better, I thought this is the best way to market. Instead of interrupting people through commercials, you can make life better for everyone through sponsorship. So that was was the genesis.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, you started the conversation by saying that you – double majored in political science and, and philosophy and, and and that I was worthless. it's interesting. it probably wasn't worthless. It was probably the unique balance of both. you know the uh, Mark Emmert is the president of the NCA right now, but prior to that, I had the privilege of working with Miles Brand when he was the head of the NCA and he was a philosophy professor and and, and I love the fact that he brought that mindset, He always saw intercollegiate athletics so differently than others did because of that background. And also, you you made a statement just a minute ago about you didn't know any better uh and, and what a strength that is <laughs> uh, y- you know my wife tells me all the time you know honey if we knew uh then what we know now we wouldn't have done this <laughs> we, i mean we were stupid you know i we we closed on our first house and i went and resigned that afternoon you know because i knew i'd never get a home loan being an entrepreneur uh and so here you are you, you go whoops there's something here And then what happens?
1: Well, then what happens is um, I there was Ad Age was being published out of actually New York, but the parent company was in Chicago, a company called Cranes.
0: Yep, yep.
1: And so I wanted to consult to cities and brands about how to do sponsorship right. There was no such thing as sponsorship, but like we kind of started it in Chicago. And I don't want to say we started it because the sin industries, so-called beer and tobacco, I don't think those are sins, but that's kind of what we call them. Yeah. They were already off TV. So you had the cool jazz festivals. Um, you had the tobacco companies sponsoring motorsports and rodeo. So there was like kind of a nascent sort of sponsorship idea. But it was really, really relegated to a couple of industries and not being dealt with as anything other than pr a way to get your name up because you couldn't be on tv so what i wanted to do was help cities um, leverage their hotel motel tax money as well as the position of the mayor's office to team with brands to make the city more appealing a place that people would want to come back to or to relocate to as well as businesses. So I thought, you know, before I can do that, I better establish some more credibility besides just Chicago. So I went to the publisher of AdAge and said, you know, newsletters are a really big thing now, and we should start a joint venture, a newsletter on sponsorship. And, you know, my background while I was in college, I worked as a journalist, which is a glorified way of saying I worked at the Colorado Spring Sun writing obituaries. I was not like (laughs) breaking news, okay? I was just like writing obituaries. But so I brought my journalism background to Crane's and said, you know, I I know all about newsletters. I didn't know a thing about them. Let's start this joint venture. Because I thought, you know, if AdAge endorses this, then it's going to be a real thing. So, um, oh my God, we, he said yes. And we were miserable. I don't know who was more miserable, him or me. we 20 years later, we reconnected and laughed about it. But I mean, I was resigning every other week. I, I was I, a couple years out of college. I had no idea, but this was a big corporation and they wanted everything slow and I wanted everything fast. So, um, at the end of the year, I had an option to buy back the newsletter. Okay. This, this was all crazy. There was really nothing to buy, but.
0: How how old were you at the time?
1: Well, I was three years out of college, you know, undergraduate. So whatever that is, pretty young.
0: 25. I felt
1: old, you know, I didn't feel like, oh, I'm young. I felt like, you know, I'm a business person, so no problem. So I got back the newsletter and, um, on my own. And the first thing I wanted to do was a conference, you know, something that cranes didn't want to go into that business. And then, you know, other publications like directories and consulting. So, um, that's what we did. And what I had was the unfulfilled subscription money. So the deal was I had to repay them like four times what they'd invested and fulfill all the unfulfilled subscriptions, which I think were like 500 then, at like $320 each. So that was that was my startup money, and um, that first year we published the directory, we did our first conference. We expected, you know, 60 people, and 120 showed up, and there was no way to reach all these people to tell them we had to change hotels because the hotel couldn't accommodate 120. So we sent my parents um, to the former hotel, who stopped everyone walking in and gave them cab fare to the new hotel, and that was the first IEG conference, was 120 people. Oh my God, we were so excited. And then um, we decided to move it to Chicago from New York and got the next year like 300 people and then 600, and then we sold out at 1,200 every year after that. That was our... You know, maximum. So, but the first, you know, it was launching with cranes that got it going, really.
0: You know, it's interesting how that gave you two things. One, it gave you for your subscribers that credibility. You had the the, the ad age brand, but more importantly, it gave you that you said, "I can do this." <laughs> I mean, I can do I can do this by myself. Uh, I you know, I, I think the frustration maybe you had with. Mayor Byrne was the frustration we have with other organizations of, you said you were going to do this and you're not doing it. Oh, Um, I
1: was heartbroken. I was, it was devastating. You know, up until then I, I wanted to be, go into politics. Let's probably before I got involved in all of this, but it was just a heartbreaking thing. You know, again, in hindsight, I was such an idiot to think something different. Right. But, um, Anyway,
0: I don't know, you know, Lee Clow Lee Lee Clow wrote the the great ad copy for um for Apple, uh, uh, you know, uh, about, you know, people that are different, people that see the world differently. Um here, you know, here's <laughs> what's the tagline here's to the um I'm trying to think what it did. To create. Yeah. The, yeah. And so and so part of that is, is is what you were able to do from that standpoint. Uh, I have a sign in my office that I've had for 30 years. that says, I believe in me. After that, there's room for doubt. Um, and, and and I think you had kind of had that epiphany and you you had done that. I was fortunate. I had moved to San Antonio in 1987. To be the marketing director for the Nabisco Golf Championships. you were talking about the tobacco money. At this point, it was the Ross Johnson era. Yeah, it was it was Ross Johnson, and he loved golf. and uh, And candidly, at that time, before the scanner. Um, Golf made sense because the buyers of Nabisco Cookies and Crackers at the grocery chains were largely white males, and they love golf, and so he, he basically bribed the trade to carry Chips Ahoy and Triscuits and, you know, Nilla Wafers and all that, and, and I don't know who it was. I'm usually good about remembering people, but I met a guy in San Antonio, who said to me, I have just come back from the most amazing conference in Chicago. And he gave me the the book, uh, you know, the, and I, and I was, uh, yeah. And, and literally I fell in love. I mean, I, I looked at this book and I said, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know this existed. This is what, this is what I want to do with my life. And and so I came in 1989, well, Lord, that's 30 years ago, uh, and, and, and continued to come for so long, and, and a credit to you was, Lisa, it just got better every year, and it was like, it can't be better than this year, and then you would come the next year, and I'd go, oh my God, it's better again. How did that happen?
1: You know, one of the things that I, I was always a student and loved hearing from the people doing things different. So you would never see a commissioner of a sports league speaking because my feeling was they were still selling media. And frankly, you know, a monkey could sell media. It was eyeballs and it was a no brainer sale. So who were the people that were really out there creating new ideas about intellectual property and sponsorship sales were not the commissioners of the sports leagues, but it was a museum director from the Guggenheim, okay? It was Norm Langell, who was the creator of the Bumbershoot Festival in Seattle, you know, who now does Teatro Sinzani. It was Cirque du Soleil. The founders of Cirque du Soleil came to the first three years of conferences, the founders. So it wasn't like media buyers and marketers and people talking about eyeballs and impressions. It was people really talking about passions. And if you think about it, that's what makes people love a brand, is if They're supporting their passions, not if the brand is having an effective buy of eyeballs. So um, by bringing constantly people that think different, and frankly, what made IEG for people like you, it was the people that were coming as willing to share as to take. And so all we had to do was provide that platform and bring them all together and, you know, the hotels used to complain, we would use more of their phones. Again, this was before mobile, okay, but we would tie up more operators and phones and the least amount of alcohol because people were so busy, you know, bumping their gums, as you say in the South, um, all night sharing these ideas. It was the one time of year that they would, like, do their thing, they'd go home and do their thing, and then they'd meet other people doing the same thing once a year. So it was really kind of a combustion of creatives. And um, I think that formula of avoiding the people getting up there saying how great they were and blah, 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 when really what was their accomplishment um, was zero maybe or something like managing an old boy network as opposed to creating something new. That was the formula for great speakers. Um, Even I think about people like Chris Whittle.
0: Yeah, that was my favorite one. That's my favorite one of all time. You know, that, well, just because it resonated, no, no, I mean, you know, you were again. You, you know, the, the idea of uh, here's to the crazies. I mean, you brought the crazies. You brought them in before Apple did, uh, before Lee Clow ever wrote that tagline. But the crazies were the ones that you would go, "Wow, they just are seeing the world differently." And Whittle, Whittle did you remember that speech? I mean, he came in and he said, "If if I." If I ran General Motors remember that I mean and he had he, and he had the numbers he had like this is what they spend every year and one of his ideas was I'll buy the Olympics no I didn't say I'm going to sponsor the Olympics I'm going to buy the Olympics I'm going to bring you the Olympics uh, commercially you know uninterrupted basically then he said I'm going to take every Toyota owner to lunch I mean it but but the thing that it just it was unbelievable the thing that stuck with me was he talked about marketing in thunderstorms. And he used and he used Woodstock as the example. He said, you don't have to do it. You know, we were in a CPM world and he was he was like, CPM is the death of ideas. But he, he I still remember it. I still get goose bumps thinking about it. You know,
1: it's so funny that you that's what you remember, because here's what I remember. I'm glad you're reminding me of that. And and just as an aside, when I we were advising the NCA through the years, um, they never listened to anything we told them. <laughs> basically, here were these like, you know, fast talking people from Chicago, women. Um, but one of the first things I ever told them was, why are you selling Final Four to broadcasters? You own it. Buy the broadcast time yourselves and sell the whole thing together, the broadcast and the sponsorship, which, of course, they never did, which is what you're saying uh, Chris Whittle had said um, about the Olympics and GM, probably where I got that idea and didn't realize. But what I remember him saying was, right now, the way they sell advertising is based on these ratings of the supposed number of people that had the opportunity to see It would be as if I walked up to a ticket counter to buy an airline ticket and was told, well, we know it takes off for Chicago at 10 a.m. We don't know if it ever arrives in its destination of New York or if it does arrive, what time it's going to arrive or if it's going to arrive safely. That was his like kind of description of the Nielsen ratings at the time. It's still the time now. Um, And that's what I remember so profoundly. It was always about these outputs and never about outcomes. And that, to me, was such a radical idea. And one of the reasons we thought sponsorship made more sense, but nobody was really thinking, you know, we have to look at outcomes, not just outputs,
0: well, you, you you had speakers that, in my opinion, were like decades ahead of their time. I, m- I remember when the head of Patagonia came. We y'all were talking about environmental issues when no one was. You were talking about, you know, all sorts of causes and arts projects. Long, long. I mean, like a decade before anybody was.
1: Well, Patagonia, Ivan Schinard. Yeah, he came and spoke. I think it like our third or fourth one. And one of the um, things when I think about, like, who were the breakthrough speakers, the Chris Whittles, the Yvonne Chenards, Ben Cohn from Ben and Jerry's, yep. Yep. Um, the founder of Seventh Generation, who is looking seven generations forward on their impacts. Um, a lot of hair care companies, John Paul Mitchell, um, Sebastian. Why was it these Entrepreneurs, even in you know fast-moving consumer goods like hair care or clothing, like Patagonia, why were they such big thinkers? And I think in part it was, it was their company, and they did care about results. And if you cared about results, intuitively you knew a media buy interrupting people was not the way to go. And so intuitively, you really understood the power of partnering with things that your customers cared about. And so the real champions for this industry were the people that had started the companies because the people that were just corporate executives, not that there's anything wrong with being a corporate executive at a publicly traded company, it wasn't your money at the end of the day, you know? And so I think you could fall back on the easy thing like impressions um, or you could justify a love of golf through things like, you know, your trade loved it, which is legitimate and fine. Totally. Um, but the people that really got the concept of buying the IP, the intellectual property side of sponsorship, were really these brand creators that um created whole categories. I mean, it wasn't just creating another ice cream. It was a whole category of ice cream. It wasn't just creating Red Bull, you know, an energy drink. It was creating the category of energy drinks. That that company was, you know, spearheaded by somebody that used 75% sports and music and like less than 25% measured media when nobody was doing that.
0: Well, you also mentioned something. I mean, again, the keynote speakers every year, you always had somebody that, again, you, you came to change the way you thought. And, and what I, one of the things I think is bad with society today and politics, we'll talk politics in a few minutes is it's almost like you're shamed for changing your mind. Well, what what human being on the planet hasn't changed their mind? I mean, I mean, at some point, you get new information or you see the same information from a different prism and it allows you to be good. But you also mentioned something I think was critical for my growth. The conference was like family. It, it was... It, you just had lots of... It was a culture of sharing. I remember... You asked me first. Hey, will you do a breakfast roundtable? And 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 I and I did a breakfast roundtable, and I took that very seriously. I, I thought someone in a rotation of three has decided to give me thirty-five minutes of their life. I better be good, or they've wasted their time and money. And it used to it used to frustrate me as a young person to kind of watch a lot of people fly in, do their speech, and leave. And I thought, you're a moron. You, 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 you I mean, I I, tr- I, went to every breakfast roundtable. I, I I, mean, I, I was like a sponge because there were so many smart people <laughs> that were there. And you just had that culture of workshops and breakfast roundtables and people giving and receiving and... And then you couldn't wait for who you sat with at lunch, because you you knew you were going to sit next to somebody in a totally different industry that was going to change the way you thought. Talk, talk about how how did you engineer that?
1: Well, that first I just want to back up for a second. Knowing I was going to do this um, podcast today, I sort of tweeted out and reached out to my LinkedIn network and say, you know, doing this today any memories, what stands out. And I think um, every single person I heard back from mentioned Rick Jones presentations at any level. No, no, no. This was true because you always over-delivered, over-shared. And I think um, sort of like us, I hope like us, understood that an idea is only as good as the person Going and doing it, you know, kind of like ideas are cheap, but um, the difference between one person and another person is the ability to take that idea and do something with it, which you were able to do, and so many other people they they don't necessarily go ahead and do. And the other thing was the idea that the more the whole industry gets better and smarter, the better it is for the, everybody. It's not a pie that's like limited, but it's not, it's open. Okay. It just gets bigger. If more and more people make sponsorship look good, then the everybody benefits. So there's no reason not to give away every secret you have because you're helping the industry grow. It's like an ecosystem, but it's also going to help your business.
0: Well, I'd say I like to say that all boats rise with the tide. I live on a tidal river. Quit worrying about how big your boat is. Create a tide. Everybody will win. I remember though one year, Mike Reichman, who's my dear friend, uh, said to me coming off of it, he said, you tell them too much. And I said, no, Mike, you still got to do it. I mean, I mean,
1: <laughs> you got to do it. What? We were always told the same thing. Why are you giving away these formulas? Why are you giving all of this away? And it was like, okay, you could give it away to 100 people. Only two people are going to do it anyway, and they're just going to make you look better. And if they don't, so what? But there was always a mentality of that the pie was limited, and I hated that idea because it just— it's not the right mentality to build an ecosystem. It's, you know, our third conference, our third IEG. Okay, again, I'm not very experienced in business at all. Okay. Um, Bud Stanner, who was Mark McCormick from IEG's, yeah, yeah, like, okay, yeah, right hand yeah. person. Well, we had Mark speak, and Bud came with him, and they wanted to talk to my brother and I. My brother was my partner, um, my brother and me afterwards. Okay. Like, hey, what did they want to say? If we didn't sell to them, this is, we're three years into this, okay? They were going to start a competing publication. Our flagship property at that time was our newsletter. You know, we did the conference, but the biggest deal was our the newsletter. sponsorship
0: report, yep. Yep. yep.
1: So if we didn't sell to them, they were going to do a competing publication and a competing conference. And you know, IMG, they were big. Who who whose name did I steal for International Events Group? <laughs> international Management. What did I know? Okay. I totally was like, oh my God, IMG. Even though I didn't agree with most things, like I still, you know, they were like the model. So at that minute, I knew we are on the right track. Boy, oh boy. If that's what they're, you know, they're so threatened by these two little nothings to say we're going to compete and they did they partnered with business week and started a competing sports publication um didn't last that long but it you know in a competing conference
0: and you know why it didn't last no soul no soul yeah yeah
1: but so going back to this idea of sharing and family and caring if you're just doing it for you know market share. If you're just doing it to count up impressions and report to the media buyers, you know what? Yes, yeah, you can probably be successful, but you're not going to form a community that's really going to grow. You, it's just going to be limited. So,
0: well, yeah, it did, and it worked because y'all wanted to be great, and and and. But ultimately, as an entrepreneur you do what I've done like three times I'm not I don't think I'm gonna do it again but uh, but you ended up you know you know you, 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 know, you end up selling it uh, talk about that experience good bad and different t- t- talk about it
1: well there's lots of ways to look at it one was our consulting group you know became the primary driver of revenue and our clients were increasingly saying they wanted you know global capacity, whatever that meant. You know, they wanted to be able to have their Europe offices have advice, that Asia office have advice. Okay. We either had to figure out a way to be better managers and grow those capabilities of hiring and opening offices, or we weren't going to be able to keep these clients. So that was never our thing. So we decided, you know, we better look at thinking about um, partnering or selling to somebody that had those capabilities. We also saw for our employees, you know, um, we had people, so many people that were with us 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, and their, you know, their spouse would get moved and yet their opportunity to move with us wasn't very big i mean we let people work remotely but still it's not like we had offices all over um so this is one way of saying why we sold you know there's lots of other reasons for selling but um mainly it was just it was either grow or get smaller again and that was going to require selling.
0: Well, you sold a WPP. Was Martin Sorrell part of that process or was he somebody? No? Okay. No,
1: we hired a broker. Um, okay. And it was for us, it wasn't like we just decided to sell. We worked yeah. for five years um, with Advisor when we decided we were going to sell to figure out, you know, so how do we make something for our employees? We'd already given like phantom stock to our key employees so that they couldn't, well, they could, but so that there'd be a reason for them to stay with us, et cetera. So it was a big long-term plan. It was like not the happiest five years of my life because everything then became in the guise of selling. Um, Not everything, but way more than I wanted. But, That was okay. So we worked on it, and then um, the broker had um, an auction. And so it started out, I think there were like, I don't know, like 200 people interested. They had the first round, and we weren't involved at all. Then they had the second round, and they winnowed it down to like 40, then 20, then three. And so we met the last three, the final three standing. But truthfully, I'd given the broker... the list of companies that should buy us. And those were the lists of companies that ended up, you know.
0: Oh, yeah, in the finals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have saved yourself. <laughs> yeah, I told you so. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Sorrel, there were two WPP companies that um, wanted to buy us, and um, we we had no say in this. It, and they went with Group M, which was their media buying agency, yep. which yep. to me was the biggest irony because this whole field was started sort of in response to impressions and measured media is is kind of like wrong and stupid and who buys us is the single largest media buying agency <laughs> in the world. So um, you know, was it a great fit from the beginning? Probably not you know, they're dealing in $10 billion contracts and we're, you know, we're dealing in hundreds of thousands of dollar contracts. So it was a little bit funny.
0: Well, you stayed a little while and then you, yeah, yeah, obviously that's part of the deal. And then I guess when you're, you know, your contract, you were able to leave and, and everybody still benefited, you, you, you start something new. So let's talk about that now.
1: Well, so, Increasingly, I sort of thought sponsorship was getting commoditized, like in no longer meant so much to say sponsored by as in the beginning when it was like a risk that a company took because now everybody did it. Um, so I thought, you know, I, I want to think about something new and forever since going back to my roots at the city of Chicago, I've been really interested in civil society And one of the things that was bothering me forever was the fact that FIFA World Cup, who was one of our clients, had no trouble getting tens of millions of dollars in sponsorship. No matter how bad the people behind FIFA were or how little they were doing to make the world better, okay, they could get millions of dollars in sponsorship, yet there's something called Homeless World Cup that was really making huge differences for people in 80 countries, homeless people, women, men, children. um, And they couldn't even get $1 million. Okay. So I thought, all the metrics we're using now are wrong. We need new metrics to look at philanthropy, and we need new metrics other than just financial metrics for everything So I wanted to create a way to put dollar value on social capital. And that's what we've been working on the last four years. And as your wife said, had we known then what we know now, (laughs) had I known at the beginning how hard this was, I never, ever would have done this. But um, four years into it, um, it's still really hard, but it's coming together. So we are looking at how do you put dollar values on things that aren't traded in commercial marketplace. And the idea here is that for the nonprofits and charities that are doing the most good as opposed to those doing the best job at marketing themselves, funders, donors, brands that want to change the world have a way to compare um, who's doing the most good at the most effective um, use of resources. So that's what we've been working on for the last four years. It's called the Pro Social Valuation Service and um, it, you know, it's it's everything I love and um, sort of similar to IG starting a new ecosystem.
0: Well, I think your timing is perfect. Again, I think you're a little bit ahead for this reason. You know, I, I talked to I, you know, I'm 65 now, I'm, you know, I'm I'm now, I've, I've laughingly referred to myself as Medicare man, you know, the, the only superpower I have is I don't know how the hell Medicare works, but, but nevertheless, I, but I have tried to stay in the words of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan forever young and, and the way you stay forever young is you get up every day and you try to grow and you try to learn. And one of the things that I've, I do is I spend an enormous amount of time with young people and, and Gen Z and to a certain extent, millennials are rejecting institutions. We see declining memberships in civic clubs. We're seeing declining memberships in churches and synagogues, but what we are seeing is they want to be part of movements and you're now going to be able to measure and in many ways monetize a movement. And I think that's exciting because I I think that's where the world's going is, you know, I don't want to be a member of a club. I want to go do something. And I want to go do something that I believe really, really matters. I've been watching with great interest this young lady from Sweden that, that spoke at the U.N., And the ridicule she's getting from certain segments, which just I'd like to strangle people, Um, but the fact that she's hit a nerve with other teens around the world. And so there's a movement now. There's a movement that says there's got to be a change. Parkland, there's a movement. Okay, you bunch of adults can't fix this? Okay, we'll fix this. Uh, and it's not part of a formalized, organized, you know, charity or cause. It, it's like a spider web. It's different. And, and I think, you know, all the hard work you've spent for four years, I, I believe your time is now. Uh, I really do that. I, I believe that. Um, and so I think you're going to see some traction.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, a lot of um, events, which, you know, this whole world of sponsorship started with events like um, festivals or golf tournaments you mentioned, they're turning themselves now into not just two weeks events with economic impact, but year-round mission-driven organizations that have a purpose bigger than entertaining people, though it's great to entertain people, but truly they have a purpose to make their community better. And so things like um, Arts Quest, which started as Music Fest in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, when Bethlehem Steel closed um, and the entire town basically was out of business and their tax base was lost, et cetera, the people came together from around Music Fest and created this ArtsQuest. Quest They were the ones that took over the abandoned um, steel mills and turned it into a year-round venue for arts, education, and culture that now is an attraction that's bringing businesses to relocate to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Not steel businesses, but businesses of today, craft breweries, etc. They basically saved the town. And what I'm seeing is that Festivals and events, um, whether sports, arts, entertainment, they bring together all sectors of society, you know, the brands, the leaders in education, the foundations, the community trusts, and in a way, they have the ability to catalyze um, and mobilize change in their communities. So that's one strand of clients we've been working a lot with, as well as, you um, Community trusts that have the need to really understand what kind of return their investments are getting, because the people that leave them their estates are saying, you know, how are you determining who you're giving your money to? So it's been um, it, it, it's been really really interesting. And yes, what you're seeing about young people is absolutely true. And I think that um, what we're hoping is that there's just more discipline around it as opposed to just an all-boys network, not unlike sponsorship in its beginnings, you know.
0: Yeah, and interestingly, you've got – you're at an interesting intersection in that – not only do we have a lot of young people that want to be part of movements, but we have our generation, aging baby boomers, with a significant amount of disposable income that we're going to leave behind, and what's the legacy? And where where do you want it to make the biggest impact? You know, where can you truly say, I left the world better with the resources that I was given, uh, and it didn't just go into a black hole someplace? And- you know and it's interesting if you look at the robber baron era of of you know there was a lot of wrong with the carnegies and 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 and, and the rock of but but, you, but exactly you look at the good that they did we're on the cusp of a, a new generation leaving behind stuff and i think I think you're going to be right at the top of it. Listen, I'm I'm going to tell you this. We've had a lot of people. So yes, many ma'am. people
1: just want to say hi to you from my reach out, okay, <laughs> and tell you that they owe their ability to do better in their careers to you. So so well, I want to just say I'm, thank you I'm on very, behalf of hundreds well, of people, thousands well, thank, probably.
0: Th- thank you for that. But I'm going to tell you this. You're absolutely my hero. I, I owe so much to both the knowledge I gained and the relationships I got from IG. I can't say that enough. I mean, I look back and it was I've had a magnificent career. Y'all were the launching part. Well, you
1: gave more than you got. So thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you for being with us today from the bridge and Can we'll have to, to have you, have you back. Again. Okay. okay. Thank, thank you, you dear. See, See you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. So we'll close today's show with another great place to eat on the road with Rick. Again, we've spent the day today talking about IEG and that wonderful conference in Chicago. And while I attended IEG, I discovered a great place to eat. And every year I would host a group on uh, Tuesday night in a place called Shaw's crab house. Shaw's is actually, um, A seafood restaurant that has two parts. It has a main restaurant and then it has what was called the Blue Bar or the Oyster Bar. And like I said, every Tuesday night I'd take friends and host friends at Shaw's. They have a large round table in a small room off the Oyster Bar and we would uh, consume a lot of uh, uh, cold beers and a whole lot of seafood. They have literally amazing seafood chowders, oysters. They have these amazing oyster crackers in jars that you can grab. Fresh fish cooked in so many ways. Stone crabs, king crabs, snow crabs, (laughs) uh, every kind of crab. You know, it's a long ways from the sea in Chicago, but it's still my very favorite seafood restaurant in the world. And I don't know maybe if the food was great or the company was so great, but I have a a warm spot in my heart for Shaw's in uh, Chicago, Illinois so that's today's show and what a show it's been thanks to my dear friend and hero Lisa Gugman and for all the friends I've met at IEG over the years please let me hear from you I want to know what we're doing or what we can do better to help you that are listening out there and let me know what I can do for you personally you can reach me at my email address at rick at fishbaitmarketing.com Everybody. This is your captain, Rick Jones, heading to shore. We'll see you next week.
1: This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory.